Our gracious Father, may the rich currents of your Spirit now come and turn our hearts and minds and attention to the great battle that is being fought. We pray for victory here as we open your word. And we pray for faith, faith in God. Bless us and we receive that blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad that Brother Shannon read from the Bible and not Dr. Seuss. How about you? And you may have guessed from the scripture reading that the sermon today is Armageddon and the greatest battle ever won. Armageddon is a word that conjures up in time imagery, doesn't it? Perhaps one of the most well-known words used to describe the apocalypse, the end of time, the final catastrophic end to planet earth as we know it. Hollywood producers have used this word to describe the destruction of earth by meteors. Uh, Theologians describe an end-time battle in the Middle East that will envelop the entire world, culminating in the destruction of the beast power and his armies. Others use the word Armageddon to describe a nuclear war, World War III, which will end in the final destruction of planet earth. Still others see this word as symbolic of the greatest battle fought between good and evil and every human soul on planet earth. Whatever Armageddon is, everyone agrees it is the greatest battle ever fought. And for those on the right side, it is the greatest battle ever won. The word itself is a contraction of two words. Har, meaning mountain, and Megiddo which describes a city in the Old Testament. The problem is that in all the Bible, there is no mountain of Megiddo. You can't find it. Now, Megiddo was a city in ancient times. It's mentioned 12 times in the Bible, 10 times as a city and twice as a valley, uh, presumably the valley where the city of Megiddo sat or resided. Never as a mountain. The term Armageddon is only mentioned in one verse in all the Bible. And that is in the book of Revelation 16. It's mentioned in the sixth plague. There in the list of seven last plagues. Right at the end. Revelation 16 verse 14 and 16. It says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And they gathered them together to a place called in Hebrew. What is it, everyone? Armageddon. Now there's been a debate. Is Armageddon literal or symbolic? Whatever it is. We know that the battle takes, that takes place involves the whole world. No one can say, I'm neutral. No one can say, it's someone else's battle. You can't run or hide from this last day war to end all war, wars. Because the verse tells us that they are spirits of demons which go out to the kings of the earth. And how much of the world? 
the whole world to gather them to the battle. We also know that this battle is one that involves Satan and all of his demonic legions because they are the ones who gather the world for this battle. They are the ones who bring this world to this battle. Is that what the verse says? In fact, we wouldn't have a battle if it weren't for these demons that were bringing people to the battle. Part of the key that unlocks the mystery of whether this battle is a literal nuclear war involving countries and tanks and catastrophic bloodshed, or whether it is a symbolic uh, symbol of a greater battle that is being waged for our soul, is to look at the time period that this battle takes place and the events that occur at that time. When does the battle occur according to the text there in Revelation 16? When does the battle occur? It says that it brings them... To the battle of the great, the great what? The great day of who? Of God Almighty. The great day of God Almighty. That's when this battle occurs. They're bringing them to the great day of God Almighty. Now we know that Armageddon will involve the whole world. It will involve you and it will involve me. We know that evil angels, the demonic spirits, bring the whole world to this battle. Were it not for these demons, there would be no battle. We know that this battle culminates at the great day of God Almighty. But when is the great day of God Almighty? Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, you'll find when this great day of God Almighty is. It says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold... There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. The great day is the judgment day. It is the day when the record of all will be fixed forever. As the mighty men and slaves and free men and great and rich and poor all look up into the sky and see the final events of the earth as they behold the Lamb of God coming now as king and as judge and as all the world realizes that time is up. There is a great trembling inside because many realize that they are not ready to close life's life's record. The great day of God's judgment is here. That's the great day of God Almighty. Jude chapter 1 and verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The wicked angels who joined in the rebellion of Satan and heaven will face the judgment. The men and women who have walked this earth will all face the judgment. Position, power, riches, wealth all become worthless on this day. Nothing but the blood of Jesus 
can save you and me from this day. You see, friends, the book of Revelation is not primarily concerned about a literal war in the Middle East. Sure, there may be war. In fact, Jesus predicted that as the time approaches for the end, that there would be an increase of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, Sure, there may be a major conflict in Jerusalem or even some fighting in the very valley of Megiddo. But the focus of Revelation is not a physical battle. The focus of Revelation is on a great battle that is being fought right now in the hearts and minds of every person on this planet. It was a war that Satan started and a battle which his demons continue. This battle, the final cosmic conflict over your eternal destiny, will culminate on the great day of God Almighty. The whole world is being led to the final judgment and all of us must make a decision. In the Old Testament, the day, this great day, was termed the day of the Lord. And you will find it repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. If you can turn there quickly, go to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Right before Amos. Joel chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. And here's what it says. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. The stars shall withdraw their shining. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people. Armageddon, like much of Revelation, is symbolic. For the great day of the Lord. For the great battle that wages between Christ and Satan in every heart and in every mind. Today the battle rages over your soul. Demons are seeking to draw you along with all the world into this battle. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age. Is it a physical battle or a spiritual battle? But there's hope, friends. Although Revelation pictures a cosmic conflict that envelops the whole world, it also reveals a group of people who are victorious at the end. Revelation 15.2 says, And I saw something like the sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Revelation 12, verse 10 through 11 says, Then I heard a loud voice, not a soft, quiet voice, not a whisper, but a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down and they overcame. They did what? They overcame. People here in this auditorium will overcome through the name of Jesus. They overcame by what? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even to the death. Amen. I see faces here today who will overcome. What do you say? Amen. I see faces here today who will be on that sea of glass victorious at last. What do you say? Amen. This isn't some elite group. These are real people 
who struggled with real temptations. These are people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. These are the ones who overcame the devil and his demon agents through the power and blood of Jesus Christ. Today, thousands want to know the secret of the, to their victory. How did they overcome more than 15 million people who struggle with alcohol in the United States want to know, how do I overcome? More than 65 million people who this month binge, were binge drinking, 65 million in the United States want to know, how do I gain the victory? More than 45 million Americans who are wasting their paychecks and losing their life inch by inch to cigarettes, cigars, and vaping also want to know, how do I overcome this battle? Whatever you have, uh, whether you have anger issues, pornography addiction, drug addiction, you're a slave to marijuana, whatever it is that clings to you and pulls you down today, that sin that brings shame and guilt into your life, we all want to know, what is the secret to win this great battle of Armageddon in my life? What is the secret to victory to the greatest battle ever fought? The battle against sin. Zechariah tells us, Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Unless we first realize our utter depravity, weakness, and helplessness in overcoming sin, we can't win this war. Not by our might. Or our power will we gain the victory. In fact, this is the very tactic that would ensure our loss. Jesus Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. He also said, the Bible promises, I can do all things. How much? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's all things except free you from alcohol. Is that right? All things except the, the, the hold of tobacco. Now, I can do all things through Christ except walk away from drug addiction, porn addiction, marijuana addiction. Is that what the text says? I can do all things. And when Christ says all things, he meant all things. And there's a lot of things that bind us today. But the prophet Jeremiah asks, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Those who are trying to kick the habit or overcome sin in their lives in their own strength are attempting an impossibility. Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. The Bible makes it crystal clear. Victory can only come through Christ. Revelation resounds with this truth. In Revelation 19.11 it says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Now, a white horse was a symbol of victory in the ancient times. Kings would go out and fight major battles. Thousands of, of soldiers would die on the battlefield, but somebody would come out a winner. Somebody would come out wearing the crown. Somebody would come out the victor, and that king, that king would command his soldiers, get a white horse. And he would get on that white horse, 
And as he rode into his hometown down Main Street, he would parade a victory parade on that white horse down Main Street, riding the white horse, sharing, you may have lost your husband, you may have lost your brother, but we won the war. We won the war. It was not in vain. We won the war. Revelation 19.11 says, Behold a white horse, and who rides on that white horse? Revelation 19.13 says, His name is called the Word of God. Now the only one in the Bible whose name was called the Word of God is Jesus Christ. In John 1 verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That's Jesus Christ. He's the word of God. He's riding the white horse. He's leading the victory march. And and notice what it says after that in Revelation 19 verse 14. It says, And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Jesus isn't the only one riding a white horse. You see, you're there too, riding a white horse. He's leading the victory march. But the victory is not alone for him, for you too. You too have gained the victory there in heaven. You too will join this procession down the streets of gold. You too will march in the victory march. This is the great victory procession from the battle of Armageddon. Christ has gained the victory over Satan. The great battle against sin. And yes, the armies of people who follow him are those who have gained victory through Christ's power as well. They also are riding white horses. Revelation 12, 11, They overcame him, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see, prophecy reveals that victory only comes through the might and power and grace of Jesus Christ. Humans cannot gain the full victory over sin on their own because we have depraved human natures, weakened over generations through the sin of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents. Now, someone may say, Pastor, I know I sometimes mess up, but God knows my heart. God knows that although I falter and fail, my heart is good. My heart is right with him. But the Bible tells us that those who think that their heart is is good are lying to themselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, either I'm lying or the Bible's lying. The Bible can't lie because the Bible's truth from God. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But pastor, God isn't going to judge people based on what they did. Or, or thought, it's all based on your motives, your good intentions, your sincerity. Surely sincerity alone will get me to heaven. And Jesus addressed this question by comparing the human heart to trees that produce fruit. He said in Luke 6 verse 43, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree 
bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What is Jesus saying? Sincerity, good motives, good intentions can't be separated from good works. The goodness or wickedness of your heart will be revealed in your actions and your words. When, when actions that bring us guilt and shame and remorse are revealed in our life, we can know that our professed sincerity is just a cloak for sin. We need more than good motives or our best intentions. We, may, we need more than sincerity. We need forgiveness And we need transformation. We need a new life in Jesus Christ because the Bible declares God will bring every, uh, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. On that day, sincerity isn't going to cut it. Now, someone might say here today, Pastor, that's legalism. We can't be saved by good works. We can't be saved by keeping God's law. And I would say to that, amen. The book of Titus tells us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. But you know, Titus continues by saying, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, we we get so hung up on this term legalism that we completely have forgotten what legalism truly is. Legalism is trying to earn your salvation through your own works. Grace is accepting the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Amen? Amen. The forgiveness offered to us through the blood of Jesus Christ is grace. The transformation offered to us through the spirit of Jesus Christ is grace. When we seek to live a holy life in harmony with God's law, and we live that life through the power of Jesus Christ, that's not legalism, friends. That's grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. If you are depending on your own works to save you, you're fighting a losing battle. But the gift of grace that offers us forgiveness is also the gift of grace that offers us transformation. Listen to this promise of God for you. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's a promise from God, friends. It's a check that will never bounce. You can cash it and expect it to come back true. Now, how exactly does that happen? How exactly does God take a sinful heart that lusts after sin and turn it into a heart that follows after the things of God? What precisely does God do to take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh? The secret of transformation or conversion is a mystery. In fact, the Bible even calls it the mystery of God. Just like we don't know how sin started in the heart of Satan there in the beginning, we don't know exactly 
how God is able to take a heart that is filled with sin and turn it into a heart that is filled with righteousness. We, we can't fully explain it. We can't fully understand it. But we can all fully experience it. The Bible calls this experience by several names. It says this experience is conversion. Transformation. New birth. Born again. New mind. A new heart. A new life. And lastly, it calls it the mystery of God. But by whatever name it calls it, you can experience it. You may not understand all the workings of what God is doing in your life, but God intends that every person experience the converting, transforming power of His grace. If you take all the texts of the Bible together, you realize that this conversion experience is something that God actually starts in your life. You don't start it. He starts it. You being here today is God's work to begin the conversion process in you. God will bring people into your life or he may lead you to pick up the Bible or will place a sense inside of you to come to a conference or church like this because God knows that if you're going to be converted, if you're going to find victory in your life, you must be confronted by the truth. Now, we don't like change as humans. And unless we are confronted by the truth, you think we're going to change? No way. I mean, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? You're not going to bring yourself to conversion. There's no way you would seek after God. You like the world too much. You know how I know? Because I'm just like you. i got a heart just like you. I know what it's like to love the world and say, to follow Christ? What, are you kidding me? I love the world. But when Jesus Christ comes inside of your life, he, he confronts you with the truth. He confronts you with the truth. And you realize that if you don't change, you're lost. So the very first thing that God will do in a person's life is he will bring them into a place where they can see the truth. And he will do it through the convicting, moving, guiding power of his Holy Spirit. John 16 verse 13 says, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into truth. John 8 verse 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the first thing Jesus does is he brings you into contact with truth. The first thing that the people in the communities of the church need to hear, need to know, is the truth. And how will they know the truth if nobody goes? How will they be confronted with the truth? If nobody says, here am I, send me. Satan knows that your freedom from sin can be stopped if he can keep you from the truth. If he can keep you at home away from Bible prophecy conferences or churches. If he can keep you away from the truth. If he can convince you to to sleep in rather than coming to church Sabbath morning. If he can cut off that avenue of truth. He knows that you won't be confronted. And he knows if you're not confronted with the truth. Guess what? Your life is going to stay the same. And you know what's going to happen if your life stays the same? You're not going to know a difference. You're going to say, what sort of difference would it made if I went to church? I mean, I'm I'm the same today as I was yesterday. But that's the point. That's the point. Is that we weren't meant to stay the same. We need to be redeemed. And redemption costs something. Redemption requires a change. If you're not changing in your life, something's wrong. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10. Satan knows that your freedom from sin can be stopped if he can keep you from the truth. If he can keep you at home. I want you to listen to the prophecy of the Bible uh, gives about Satan's tactic in the last days. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10. It says, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, die... Because they do not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. When you hear the truth, when the Spirit of God brings you into a place where you are confronted by what is truth, immediately a sign appears in your life. A revelation that transformation is beginning in your life. You know what that sign is? The Bible calls that sign conviction. You may never have labeled those feelings of conviction inside you before, but these feelings, these internal movements of pressure in your heart and mind are the moving of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that when the Holy Spirit comes, John 16, 8, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What you don't realize is that the greatest danger to your soul is when you reject or ignore these signs of conviction. If you don't realize that God is convicting you, you may walk away from truth never to be confronted by it again. It is crucial to your salvation that you recognize the signs of the Holy Spirit convicting you. So what are the signs of conviction? Do you know? Here they are. Listen closely. The signs of conviction, number one, a growing sense that you must make a change in your life. That's conviction. The feeling that you are fighting against something you know to be truth or right, that's conviction. When the feeling of guilt, remorse, or shame begin to fill your heart for things that you previously did not feel guilty for, that's conviction. A growing desire to repent of your sins and live differently, that's conviction. A restlessness inside and a yearning for God's peace, that's conviction. These are all signs of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to your life. You can't blame the pastor. You can't blame your neighbor. You can't even blame yourself. The restless feeling you feel is the Holy Spirit doing battle for your soul. All of heaven is waging warfare over the kingdom of Satan for your life. Notice that the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life is not that you feel peace or that you feel pure joy or pure love or unutterable happiness. No, the Bible says when the Spirit of God comes, He brings conviction. But what must we do if we recognize conviction? What do we do when we say, that's what I feel. I know it's conviction. This was the very question that was asked at the end of Peter's sermon in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 verse 37 through 38 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. When we feel conviction, 
We cannot fix our sin. It's Jesus' work to fix us. When we feel conviction, we cannot pay for our sins. The payment for sin is death. Jesus already paid for it. All we can do is repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ. I promise you, better yet, the Bible promises you that if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, Christ will win the victory for you in your life. Now, what do I mean by repentance? Confession and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They go together. They're inseparable. To confess, John, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is no generic confession. No generic confession will do. If you want forgiveness for specific sins, we must be willing to confess specific sins. And repent. Acts 3.19 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is turning away from all sinful activity which you know to be wrong. This includes not only a willingness to let that specific sin go in your life, but also an active participation with God in removing all that feeds your sin in your life. And you know what feeds it. You know those things that feed into you walking down the path of sin. you got to take those out. A sinner who truly repents won't keep a stash of booze hidden in his closet or under his bed. If you really want to be free, you aren't going to keep a back door open to sin in case it doesn't take. You're going to throw it out. And place your faith in Christ that he will redeem you. Proverbs 26 verse 11 says, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. God's spirit never leads us to keep our options open for us to return to sin. He always leads us to close every door to sin because he intends to lead us to a new life. Now someone may say today, I'm a hopeless cause. I want to tell you, Jesus never died for a hopeless cause, but he did die for you. If you are alive today, Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. Believe the Bible promise in Matthew 1, 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, someone may say today, my sin is too dark or too evil to forgive. God cannot forgive what I have done. May I ask you a question, friend? Will you be so bold as to tell God what he can or cannot do? There's no sin so dark, no stain in your life that is so bad that Christ cannot make a complete and total recovery of you. Believe the Bible promise, Isaiah 118, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Someone may say today, but I've tried before. The habit is so deep in my life, so strong in my life, I can't break free. And in speaking this, you speak the truth. You can't break free. Perhaps that's why you aren't free, is because you've tried and tried in your own strength, but you've yet to try in Christ's strength. 
Jesus Christ has proven to the universe that he can overcome sin because he lived a perfect life from birth to death and he offers you his strength in place of your own today. There's no habit so strong that Christ cannot break it in your life. Believe the Bible promise, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have faith in God, dear friend. Have faith. This is what true victory looks like. Total and complete surrender to the moving of God in your life. For you to find victory, you must be willing to entirely surrender yourself to Christ. Cast yourself upon him. Trust his promise to fix all that is broken in your life. Believe the Bible promise. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Will you surrender your sin to Christ? Will you trust him today with your life? There was once a reporter working in a hotel room in Chicago. When he heard a terrible racket in the hallway. When he opened the door to investigate, he found people fleeing for their lives because of a fire that had broken out in that very hotel in Chicago. Quickly, he closed the door, ran back into his room and called his editor. And he said, you won't believe where I am. I'm in in a burning hotel. And and I've got the greatest story ever. His editor replied, you fool, get out of there. You're going to die. Don't worry, don't worry. I've got my escape route all planned out. There was no talking the reporter out of it. So the editor started to take notes as the reporter described what it was like listening to people trying to get out of a burning building. Eventually, the time had come for the reporter to make his escape. He opened his hotel door and crawled down the hallway, only to to discover that his route had been cut off. He crawled back to his hotel room and in a panic opened his window and began to cry out, Help! Help! A fireman way down on the sidewalk below heard him and looked up. He couldn't believe that someone was still in the building when everyone had time to get out. You're going to have to jump, he said. The firefighters spread a net. And as the reporter positioned himself on the edge of the windowsill, he jumped. And you know, he missed the net and died. Millions of people are fighting in the battle card called Armageddon and they say, it'll be all right. I'll change when things get really bad. I'll turn my life around someday. I've got it all planned out. But all too late, they find that their plans are going to be cut off and they've lost out on everything because they did not make a decision when they had the time. The battle of Armageddon calls everyone To make a decision for Jesus Christ today. Today, Jesus Christ offers you an opportunity to live a new life in him. What would keep you from accepting his grace of forgiveness? And also his grace to change your life today. As Christina and Ezekiel prepare to sing our special music for today, I'd I'd like to invite you. To just bow your heads with me. How is Christ moving on your heart right now?
Do you feel those signs of conviction in your soul at this moment? Do you feel that Christ is calling you to entirely surrender to him? I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond to this sermon simply by raising your hand to several calls that I'd like to make. The first one is a call that recognizes I am a sinner in need of Jesus Christ. If you recognize that, would you just raise your hand? I am a sinner in need of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can put your hand down. Number two, I can't save myself and would like to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior for the first time tonight. Perhaps you've received Him as your Savior before, and that's fine. Place your faith in Jesus. But maybe right now there's somebody who hears my voice, who has never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And for the first time today, you say, I want Jesus Christ as my Savior in my life. Will you just raise your hand to the Lord? Amen.